Good morning, church. Man, it's really good uh, to be here today, and I'm really glad that you're here because today, as DJ mentioned earlier, we start a new series, and we're calling it, we sang it a while ago, but we're calling it No Rival, No Equal, Forever You Reign, because the simple fact of the matter is there is no God like our God. Can I get an amen for that? All right, I think, I think you're with me. There is no God like our God. Can we just say that together this morning? There is no God like our God. This truly is at the center and at the heart of everything that we believe. And I'm so excited over the next few weeks for us to dive into this together. We're going to be looking at the story of Elijah, one of God's great prophets, and looking at how God was sovereign, how over and over again God proved his greatness. And God proved this, that he has no equal. He has no rival, and despite what you might think, he is the only one who reigns over all the earth and over all of our lives. I'm really glad because less than 24 hours ago, right here in this room, a few of us gathered to watch this truth displayed in the life of one of our people. Yesterday afternoon, some of us gathered in this room to see Kyle Chandler uh, baptized into Jesus Christ. And I want to just show you this about a 30-second video. I want to show you this video. And as a church, I want us to celebrate together uh, Kyle stepping into the water and giving his life to Christ. If you would, let's, let's watch this short video. So, with all that being said, um, Kyle, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross to save you from your sins? Yes, I do. So, with that confession, um, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. what it's all about, right? What a beautiful moment to see Tori baptize Kyle into Jesus for him to give his life to Christ. And, and I don't know about you, one of the things I'm praying for this year is that we'll see more and more people take that next step of faith, to see more and more people step into the waters of baptism and give their life to Christ. And if if you're here today and you have never taken that step of faith, if you've never stepped into the water, if you've never given your life to Christ in baptism, I want you to know that's something that we're praying for. Uh, that's something that in the next few weeks we're going to be talking more and more about because that's something that we believe in. That this is an important step of faith for all of us who choose to give our life to Christ and to follow Christ. And I'm so thankful, Kyle, for you taking that step. If you don't know Kyle and Tori, come over and see them after church this morning. Give them a big hug. But it's a beautiful commitment of faith. It's a beautiful public declaration that, in fact, Jesus is, from this day forward, in charge of my life. That from this day forward, I'm going to give Jesus the authority and the sovereignty and the ability and the, the right to reign over my life. I'm going to submit my life to him. And every decision from this day forward is filtered through him. Every moment, every day, everything, every next thing, it, it all revolves around Jesus. And it made me think again yesterday, and, it, and I think it's a question that you and I Especially if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to ask yourself from time to time. And, and even if you're not, it's a good question for you to ask and answer as well. Who's really in charge of your life? Who is in charge of you? Because someone, we're giving someone the keys. Someone gets to make the decisions. Someone is in charge. Who is in charge of you? 
this past week, um, a lot of you may have tuned in or you may have tuned out to the uh, State of the Union address that our president gave. And if you've been around Riverside very long or you know me, uh, I don't talk politics much, and I'm not going to this morning, so don't get worried about it. Um, if you would like to you know, give better body language than some chose. That would be fine if you appreciate what I'm saying. But uh, no commentary on the State of the Union, except for the fact that this has been a practice of our nation for, well, since our nation began, right? Uh, that through the years, sort of the practice of, of our nation is to have uh, the president give the State of the Union address. And that prompted me to do just a little bit of research. And, and I discovered that the State of the Union address wasn't always called the State of the Union address. Some of you know this because you're history buffs and you, you, you just know this kind of stuff. It was, it was originally known or, or just called the annual report. And in fact, it, it wasn't always a speech. Like for a long time and even, you know, at different times, it was just a written report that was given to Congress. And, and the idea was uh, to kind of set out uh, s- some ideas about what the current state of the Union is, what's going on in the world around us. What do we need to be thinking about to make things better? What's coming up that we all need to be aware of? How can we work together to make the future better? What's the state of the union, and how do we, how do we take that next step, right? And so I did a little research, and I found out that George Washington uh, actually is responsible or known for giving the shortest annual report. In 1970, his annual report was only 1,089 words. Interesting, huh? Jimmy Carter, on the other hand, uh, gave the longest State of the Union or annual report. It was also written, not spoken, which was good because uh, in 1981, it was 33,667 words. Wow, can you imagine if he gave that speech? Richard Nixon actually gave the shortest State of the Union address speech in 1972, just under 29 minutes. You'll be happy to know that most of my sermons are between 3,000 and 4,000 words, and they give me a 25-minute countdown clock to get done so you can get to lunch, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, we can all agree or disagree. Did somebody say amen to that? <sighs> Come on. We can all agree or disagree about, you know, what presidents stay, say in their State of the Union address. But I think it's a good idea, right? It's a good idea in, in your organization or your company to, to just push pause from time to time and ask the question, what's the State of the Union? What, what do we need to change? What do we need to do better? Where do we need to grow? Where, where do we need to cut back? What needs to happen this next year for things to get better for our company, for our organization, or whatever we're doing? It's a good question in your personal life to, to, to push pause and ask, what's the state of the union in my life, you know? Do I need to eat better? Do I need to exercise more? Do I need to, to foster better friendships? Do I need to get involved in my church? We've been, like, like we've said the last month, been talking about this idea that in your personal life, maybe one of the best decisions you can make is to choose to do life with a smaller group of Jesus' followers, because we believe when you follow Jesus together, we follow him, we just follow him better when we follow him together. And this morning, you'll have a chance again to sign up for that. It's a good question to ask in your marriage. What's the state of the union in our relationship, in our marriage? How do we need to love each other better? How do we need to serve each other better? How can we grow closer together? What's what's going right? What's going wrong? What needs to be different? What needs to change? How do we grow closer together? How do we grow closer to God together? It's a good idea. It's a good question to ask. What is the state of the union? What needs to change? What needs to get better? What do we need to do differently? And if you know anything about the story of the people of God, Israel, over and over again, when this question was asked, what is the state of the union? Rarely was it good. (laughs) 
If you have a Bible or you want to open up or turn on your Bible app, you can flip it over to 1 Kings 17. We'll look at verse 1 here in a moment. If you don't, it'll be on the big screen behind me. But at this point in the life and the story of Israel, life had gone off the rails again. Israel was chosen by God to be the people of God, to be a light to the nations, to show everyone else in the world what life would look like if you lived your life under the reign of the King of kings and Lord of lords. But over and over again, for whatever reason, Israel would would lose that focus. They would lose their focus as the people of God, and they would lose their focus on the mission of God. And whenever that happened, their life would go off the rails, and things would start falling apart. And this was often because they they lost their focus. It was because they suffered from poor leadership. It was because they had forgotten God. They forgot who they were and who they served. And oh, by the way, this is true for us too, right? Whenever we as people, whenever we as individuals begin to forget God, when we begin to, to lose our focus on God, and when we forget to be a part of the mission of God, what happens in our life so often, so often, when we lose sight of those things, our life goes off the rails. This happens for a lot of churches too, right? You ever seen a church lose its focus on God or lose its focus on the mission of God when it gets distracted by other things that are, let's just be honest, are of lesser importance? The church begins to fall apart, right? Israel had lost its focus on God and had lost its focus on the mission of God to be a light to the nations, to be a light to all those around them, to point other people toward God. That's, by the way, our same goal as well, right? And when that happened, this happens in 1 Kings 17.1. You'll read this. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. In other words, God has seen the state of the union in Israel, and it is not as it should be. And so God sends Elijah to Ahab to say, Oh, by the way, I see which way things are heading, so I'm going to turn off the water. If you back up, you kind of see what happens before this. Just a few verses at the end of 1 Kings 16, you'll see what, what, what the text says about Ahab in 1 Kings 16, verse 29. Ahab, the son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years, verse 30. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the other kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, another bad king, he married Jezebel, who we all know was not that great, the daughter of King Ithbel of the Sidonians. And he began to bow down the king of Israel, the king of the people, the chosen people of God, began to bow down in worship of Baal. First Ahab, the king of the chosen people of God, built a temple. And an altar, not for God, but for Baal, in Samaria. Then, on top of that, he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Now, I I don't know about you. I, I know all of us hope to be known for a lot of things, hopefully a lot of good things. I don't think anyone in the room would want to be known like this. 
that literally there had never been a worse, more evil, more wicked leader for the people of God than King Ahab. And because of his leadership, because of his marriage, because of his choices, the people of God had forgotten God, had forgotten the mission of God, and no longer gave their exclusive worship to Yahweh. Because of King Ahab, they had turned away from God. So what does God do? He sends Elijah, the prophet, to have a face-to-face confrontation showdown with Ahab. Now, I know the Super Bowl is tonight, and this room is probably full of people who hope both teams lose. But this is one of those epic showdowns, right? But, but it's interesting because this verse, 1 Kings 17.1, this is the very first time you read about Elijah. He's a nobody at this point. If you've been around church, if you grew up going to VBS, you know Elijah is somebody important. But at this point in the story, he's a nobody. He's, he's from Tishbe and Gilead. No one knows who this guy is. He's like Nick Foles. Like, nobody, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Backup QB. He just comes on the scene to face Ahab, the one everybody knows, you know. The king of Israel, the most powerful man in the land, is going to face off with this guy. And he's not Tom Brady, but, you know, we're hoping everybody loses here, right? <laughs> and King Ahab has a confrontation with Elijah, the prophet of God. And when Elijah comes to Ahab, he says, God sees the state of the union under your reign. He sees how you have turned the people of God, his people, his chosen people, toward the worship of Baal. And oh, by the way, Baal, he was known for several things, but one of the things he was known for was being the God of fresh water. And so the God of Israel the one true God, the one God who reigns over all the earth, is going to turn off the water. And did you catch that? He's not just going to stop the rain. He's going to stop the dew. Now, I don't know about you. It might be normal from time to time to have a drought, to have a famine, to have a time when there's no rain. But for it to last three years, for it to be contained just to the area of land that's occupied by a certain people, and for there to also be no dew, that sounds a little bit unnatural. It sounds a little supernatural. It sounds as if God is about to demonstrate who really is God. And you can pray to Bell all you want, but he's not going to be able to turn the water back on because there's only one God who can do that, and he's not him. God sends Elijah to Ahab and says, guess what? In order to get your attention, in order to call you back to obedience, in order to confront you in your rebellion, in order to say, listen, the one who brought you out of Egypt through the exodus into the promised land is calling you back to himself. The one who delivered you from slavery into freedom, the one who gave you the promised land, the one who fed you from heaven, meat and bread is calling you back to himself because you have turned away and because you've turned away guess what i'm going to keep a promise i made five or six hundred years ago if you back up to deuteronomy 11 god had told this to the people of israel through us through moses 
Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. Listen to what God said. He said, if you carefully obey the commands I am giving you today, and if you love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and soul, then he will send the rains in their proper seasons, the early and the late rains, so you can bring in your harvest of grain, new wine and olive oil. He's going to bless you like crazy if you love the Lord your God only, and you serve him only with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 15, he will give you lush pasture land of your livestock, and you yourselves will have all that you want to eat. 16, but be careful. Don't let your heart be deceived so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship other gods. If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain And the ground will fail to produce its harvest. And then you will quickly die in that good land. You're going to die in the land the Lord gave you because you have forgotten God. Don't let your hearts be deceived. God's about to keep his promise. Because the blessing of God doesn't continue when we practice the absence of God. So God sends Elijah to Ahab. He says, you've forgotten me. But I love you too much to let you forget. So I'm going to turn off the water. And the next three years are going to be incredibly and insanely difficult. In the next few chapters, you're going to see God display his power like never before to remind you that the God you serve, the God that chose you, has no equal. He has no rival. He reigns. He reigns alone, and he reigns sovereign. See, the problem was, is what Israel had done is they hadn't completely forgotten God. They had just turned to other gods in addition to God. They had sort of adopted this polytheistic culture that they were living in and the nations around them. And so it wasn't like they completely stopped their worship of Yahweh, the one true God, but they were also worshiping Baal, and they were also worshiping Asher, and they had also chosen to worship other gods and goddesses and idols and turn to different things. And I have to wonder, why? 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 Why in the world would they turn away from the God who had literally given them everything? How could they forget God who over and over again had absolutely done everything to prove his love, to prove his glory, to prove prove his majesty? How could they forget God? And and I'm sure there's much smarter people that could give you way better answers than what I'm going to give you, but I I have a feeling the reason they kept turning away from God is the same reason you and I turn away from God so often. Because no doubt, their life, although it was different from ours in so many ways, no doubt they faced challenges and problems. And they went to God like you and I go to God. But when God didn't answer right away, when they kept praying and they didn't see any response, in their impatience and in their growing unbelief, like so many of us, they turned away. And they turned to someone else for help. They turned to another for hope. They tried to figure things out on their own. And I know what you're saying. You're probably thinking, but I don't worship other gods. And yeah, I I get it. But don't we? Whatever your life revolves around, that's probably what you worship, right? Right? Because your life revolves around something. And whatever that is for you is probably where your worship goes. And for a lot of us, 
myself included, right? So many times we turn away from God because we're turning somewhere else to find help and to find hope. And so we turn. We turn to all the things that people have always turned to. We turn to power. And we look for ways to get more of it. We turn to success and achievement and money. We turn to our lust for materialism and for more and more and more to, to, to build up a hedge of protection around ourselves so that we won't have to worry or be afraid if what if this happens or that happens. And we, we build up this world of self-reliance. We, we look for others to, to fill those voids because we've prayed to God, but we're looking for something that, quite frankly, he's not delivering on the timetable that we've set out. You know, come to think of it, I'm not sure we're so different than Israel after all. Because I know that we, in this room, love God and serve God and give him our worship. The question is, do we give God our exclusive worship? Is he the only one? So as you sit in the quietness of your heart and your mind in this moment, I just want to ask you the question. What's the state of the union in your life today? Who's in charge of you? Who is your God, really? Do you find that it's true that maybe, just maybe, you're serving more than one God? Have you ever experienced a season of famine, a season of drought? And could that have been God's desire to get your attention and draw you back to himself? Because I'll tell you this, God won't stop at anything to get your attention. He loves you too much. This past week, um, one night I was uh, in my son's room, and we were uh, talking about his day. And I was like, you know, how how things go today, school, everything good? He's like, yeah, it was a hard day. I said, well, you know, tell me what happened. And my son Will is a fifth grader, and he, he said, you know, we were sitting at lunch, and um, we started talking about God and church. And he's got some really good friends who, who go to different churches, Christian churches, churches that worship Jesus and exalt God. And he's got some friends that don't, who either don't go to church and some that actually worship other gods or other kinds of gods. And so this little group of fifth grade boys, you know, at the lunch table at their school, this discussion breaks out, this theological debate about who is God, who's right, who's wrong. And my son's asking me, man, dad, what, what do I do? do? At the same time, you know, they've got this huge desire and love for God and for Jesus that's, that's been cultivated in their heart. And, and I'm thankful because a lot of you have taught them and loved them and shown them that and given them that. And, and they've also got this desire for their friends who are at the table that don't know God at all and seem so far away from him. And, and he's like, what does that mean? Like, what do we do with that? Is, is our God the same as their God? Or like, no. No, the, there is no God like our God, and there's only one God, and there's only one God who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. And so the question that night was, how do we show our friends that kind of God? And how do we tell them about this Jesus who loves them so much? Because the, the central question for every one of us is this question— Who is God? And God doesn't want to share your worship. Because giving your life to God means giving all of your life to God.
Giving your life to God, truly, means giving all of your life to God. And the question is, what would it look like if you and I did that? What would be true about you if you gave all of your life to God? What would be true about your fears? What would be true about your faith? What would be true about your time, your schedule? What would be true about your alarm clock? Let's just get, you know, real practical. What would be true about you if your life revolved around God and you gave all of your life to God? What would be true about your family? What would be true about your marriage? What would be true about your kids? What would be true about your finances? What would be true about your choices, your your schedule this week? What would be true about you if your life truly revolved exclusively around God? What would be true? Because all of our lives hinge on this one question. Who is our God? And will we give our life completely to him? Will we let the Lord who reigns over all the earth reign over us? Elijah did, and he found life. If you read the rest of 1 Kings 17, I wish we had time to do the whole thing this morning. What you'll see is that While Ahab chose not to follow God, he found famine. But Elijah put his trust in God and he found life. And maybe for some of us today, it's a chance to say, I need to put put my trust and my life completely and totally and unequivocally in the hands of God, the one true God, Yahweh. Because the truth is, there is no God like our God. Church, if you would, let's, let's stand. Here's the cool thing, and I didn't say this before, but Elijah's name literally means my God is Yahweh. In other words, Elijah's name literally answers the question, who's in charge of me? His name literally means my God. My decision is made. My God is Yahweh. Yesterday, less than 24 hours ago, Kyle put on a new name, Christian, which literally means Christ follower. Like from this day forward, this is who I am. This is, I'm saying, who is in charge of me and who is the Lord of my life? Who reigns over the earth also reigns over me. His name is Jesus. One day, Jesus would actually ask his disciples. He would get them together and he would say, hey, who do people say I am? And they would say, some people say Elijah. Elijah, interesting. Some people would say John the Baptist. And then Jesus reframed the question and he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter so often got it wrong, but in this moment he got it right. He said, you, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he could say that because he knew, Peter knew what Elijah knew. He knew that God reigned over all the earth. And when he saw Jesus walk on water, when he saw Jesus in the boat in the middle of the storm, tell the wind and the waves to stop and be still, he knew Jesus was God. Jesus reigned over all the earth. He was the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And today, I'm going to ask our elders and their wives to make their way around the room. And if, if you need someone to usher you into the presence of God and pray for you and ask God to once again be your God, to be sovereign over your life, if you need someone to, to just pray for you and ask God to be the one that you worship exclusively, that, that your life would totally and completely and unequivocally revolve around him and him alone, they would love to just pray with you. And if you would like to confess Jesus as Lord of your life,
not just Savior, but Lord. Man, we would love to help you with that today as well. So we're going to sing this song, but my challenge for us this week is that you would find a way in your heart and your life. I know it's a big ask to say, give God all of your life. I get it. But my guess is, for all of us, there is a place. There is an area of our lives where in some small way we are not living in full obedience to God. Where in some small way we have not given God our exclusive and total attention and worship. So what's one area in your life where you can turn back to God? Find that and give that back to the one who reigns over all the earth and the one who wants to reign over you. Let's sing.